everyone. Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. Today's guest, Michael Chertoff, former Secretary of Homeland Security for President Bush's second term. We met in his office where he talked about what his view is on what could go wrong and what happens if something does, especially under a president whom he said during the campaign looked to him to be hysterical. His thoughts have evolved somewhat positively and somewhat negatively since then. Make sure to follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, at Isaac Dover. Email me at Isaac at Politico.com. It's just Isaac at Politico. And tell me who you want to hear, what you think of the show, what we should be asking, who we should be going after. And I will do my best to make sure that not only am I getting back to you, but that we are taking that into account as we book our guests in the coming weeks. And now let's get to today's guest. It is early yet. When you look at what's going on in your former department and in this administration, what do you think that they're getting right, getting wrong uh, to deal with the potential threats that are out there, the things that they need to be thinking about? Well, I think uh, the appointments that have been announced so far with it and the nominations for the Department of Homeland Security, I think, are very positive. Uh, John Kelly is, brings a, a good deal of experience, in particular regional experience, with Latin America, uh, plus his military background. Um, he brings all that to the department, and I've had an opportunity to talk to him, and I think he's uh, going to he be reach very, out, or you reached out um, to him? I, we just got connected somehow. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think he's going to bring a very good uh, sensibility and strategic vision to the department. Uh, the nominee, as I understand it, for his deputy position is Elaine Duke. Mm-hmm. Uh, she worked in the department when I was there as, at a senior level, very sound, really understands the department. Um, so I, I think that the appointments are good. Uh, on, the, on the maybe not so positive side, the initial rollout of that travel ban mm-hmm. was not well executed. But the good news is they've taken it back and now they're taking the time to do it right. So again, that if you learn from uh, errors like that, that's a, a good development. Part of what happened with the travel ban is that Secretary Kelly uh, essentially overruled part of it. Uh, what does that tell you about how the administration is sort of coming together and working when you have... Uh, a travel ban or an executive order, any executive order that was uh, put together without that level of input from the various agencies and departments in the first place. And then you get to the point where you have to, you have a cabinet secretary who's uh, going against the part of the president's executive order. Well, I was not on the inside of the back and forth, um, so I can't give you any authoritative account of what happened. I mean, obviously, at the time, the initial executive order was issued, they were not really fully staffed up. I mean, they're still not. And it looked from the outside as if the White House put something out maybe without adequately vetting it. Mm -hmm. Normally, when you have a a fully staffed process, it does circulate to the operational department so people Mm -hmm. can point out what the problems are. And that didn't happen. And I think that explains why, at least in part, they've stepped back and, and decided to revise it. Look, there's value in having, uh, without being overly bureaucratic, there's value in having the departments that actually own the responsibility to make something happen, Mm -hmm. take a look at an order or a proposal before it comes out. 
because often something sounds great in the office sitting in the West Wing in the White House, mm-hmm. but when you actually understand what implementation is going to be required, you have to think a little more carefully about mm-hmm. the details. So, you know, some of this is growing pains with a, a very young group of people coming in uh, without having a fully mature process in place. Hopefully, uh, as the weeks pass, the staffing will be completed and the process will become a little bit more regular, regularized. You, you came into the Bush administration after it had been going for a while right. and uh, and after President Bush had some experience on the job. Were there times like that where you were there? You were going back and forth with them about an executive order or something else that they wanted to be working on, and that that tension was coming out a little bit. Well, to, to put it in context, I mean, when I became Secretary of Homeland Security, it was already the second term. Right. But when I became head of the criminal division, it was June of two thousand one. Uh, so we were not fully staffed. We still had people not confirmed, and then, and then of course we hit September eleventh. And that uh, threw everything, obviously, up, in, up into the air. So it's not unknown to have even, um, you know, six months into an administration to have vacancies. People haven't been confirmed yet. And then, of course, you can get, get thrown a curveball. So all of this is, uh, I think, underscores the importance of trying to get the staffing done, trying to get people confirmed quickly, putting a regular order in with the uh, National Security Council, mm-hmm. and then getting people used to the idea of how a process works in a streamlined but thorough manner. So when you think about what's out there, its possibilities, what is it that worries you? Is it, is it an attack? Is it an outbreak? Is it, uh, what is it that, that's on your mind? What worries me is what I'm not worrying about <laughs> because the, the lesson I've seen over the years has been often what you think is going to happen is not what winds up coming to bite you unexpectedly. Uh, but if you look at the range of issues out there, obviously a terrorist attack <clears throat> is always an issue. Um, you know, the, the attacks we've had in recent years have been relatively small scale, but you could have a larger scale attack. You could have an incident with North Korea that gets out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have the Russians uh, begin to take uh, more aggressive steps in other parts of Europe. All of these are, are you know, foreseeable things you have to be prepared for. And then there are things you can't foresee. It could, could be an outbreak of avian flu or mm-hmm. some kind of natural disaster of significance that would test uh, the federal government in terms of its response capability. And it's precisely because you can't be, no, be sure what's going to happen next that you want to bring all of your capabilities up to speed as quickly as possible. When you wake up in the morning, this morning, any morning these days, do you feel safe? Do you feel like everything's... Uh, ready to respond? I, I feel that in terms of a significant threat to the United States, we've built a, a very strong architecture of security. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not flawless, and it, it's not a guarantee against something bad happening, mm-hmm. but certainly it, we've done a lot to reduce the risk of a kind of a 9-11 style mm-hmm. attack. But here's what I can't know. I can't know if there's going to be an outbreak of some epidemic or pandemic mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, I can't know whether the North Koreans are going to wind up doing something that threatens, maybe not the U.S. itself, but threatens Americans overseas. Um, I can't be sure there won't be an earthquake right. in, in a place that would cause enormous stress and loss of life. And those are the things which, uh, at least when I was secretary, you had to be prepared to deal with on a moment's notice. But from what you've seen of, of this new administration and the way that they are still putting a lot of the pieces together and the... the, the uh, way they've gone about things. 
do you feel like they would be able to respond to these things in a way that would make you comfortable? I think in the Homeland Security area, because you have, I think, an experienced and capable secretary and the nominee for deputy is experienced Mm -hmm. and capable, and then the the component heads are still acting, but they're people who are largely career people, I think actually you would get a good response. Mm -hmm. I think the, the plans have been prepared, they're exercised, and so on an operational level, as long as people from the White House don't try to interfere with it, I think you could get an effective response. Uh, likewise, the Department of Defense is, mm-hmm. you know, the basic infrastructure and the basic staffing continues irrespective of who's in the White House. And I think our capabilities there are, are quite robust. Um, you know, when you get to some areas that are a little bit more uh, esoteric, like a health issue or a pandemic, there I think, you know, until you've got a fully staffed HHS, it might be a little difficult for them to respond. But um, certainly the key is— What does that mean, though, difficult to respond? How would that play out? Of of having a a well-oiled capability to make decisions, uh, make recommendations as to what the appropriate medical Mm -hmm. response is. You know, when we had the Ebola issue a few years ago— There was initially quite a rocky start, and finally the White House brought somebody in to kind of manage the issue. But there were there was confusion about what the message was, and that was already into the second term, right? right. And 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 a White House that I remember made fun of everybody from their political opponents to the reporters who said, "Oh, you just want us to appoint a czar, right?" Right, and they wound up doing that. And and that and (laughs) one of the great lessons there is if you go for a period of time without a crisis, often when a crisis occurs you're a little rusty. And one of the things we learned um, was to do a constant process of exercising, even in the absence of a real event, because that's how you retain your muscle memory when you're responding to an emergency. And frankly, it's something that this administration ought to consider doing as well. And your answer to the, the question that I asked you, you said you felt good about where things were at DHS at defense, uh, as long as the White House doesn't get yeah. involved. Uh, we have seen a White House that so far is getting involved in a lot of things down to uh, weighing in on who the deputy secretaries are going to be, holding up people. Do you feel like that as long as the White House doesn't get involved is well, secure meant, in your mind? What I meant by not getting involved uh, was that the White House was not to be involved in, in the operational chain of command and decision making. Mm-hmm. And this came up as an issue at, at times in the Bush White House. Like when? Uh, I mean, I think in, in, at sometimes during our dealing with, for example, natural disasters, uh, there was a little bit of a tendency of people in the West Wing, staff members sometimes to try to intrude. And they wouldn't quite give orders, but they would obviously be chafing at the bit to kind of direct things. And we used to politely and firmly tell them, no, this is not your job. You you can certainly advise the president and you have policy responsibilities, right. but you're not operators. And the president was very good about making it clear to his staff that they were not to be uh, in the process of literally interfering with the operational chain of command. So in some ways, that's a, um, you know, that challenge of where the White House uh, ends its influence and where the operators begin is a feature of almost every White House mm-hmm. and every uh, administration. From what you've seen of President Trump so far, do you think he'd do what President Bush did in that situation? You know, I, I'd be guessing. We haven't seen, happily, a real crisis. Um, I think, again, as you have a better populated department, particularly people with military background who understand the concept of a chain of command, I think that's that's encouraging in terms of, of demonstrating that the operators can hold their own. 
But until we actually road test it, we're not going to know for sure. Can you? I think a lot of what you talked about is is what operationally happens. And but what what is that experience like when something goes wrong? When 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 you're sitting there as the man in charge uh, and seeing the incoming, you wait, you, you get an email, you get a phone call. Uh, what, you know, Walk us through one of those experiences. You know, I mean, I, I dealt with this to some extent um, with, in dealing with natural disasters. Mm-hmm. I mean, they come up. Uh, I mean, they're not totally unexpected for the most part, but usually there's not a huge amount of lead time. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, in Hurricane Katrina, what we discovered was that the city of New Orleans and the then governor, not the current governor, but the then governor, mm-hmm. uh, w- were not really capable of responding. And for the first time, we were faced with a situation where the federal government was going to have to step yeah. in as a first responder. So, um, Do you remember the moment when you, you realized Katrina is going to be a, just a giant Yeah, I, I, I do remember. It was when the levees collapsed. Yeah. And that was due to a problem in the way the levees were constructed. And you get that, a phone call that says, Secretary Chertoff, we've got a problem. And Well, it's more than one phone call. But <laughs> you, you, you see the levees are collapsing. You see that there are problems with the evacuation. Yeah. Um, I, I relieved the then um, FEMA director from his responsibility over this, and we put Admiral Allen in place. Um, and then we worked frantically to, again, assemble the resources and the plans uh, for the first time to have the federal government step in and do a first response. Out of that experience, we really reformulated FEMA, and we developed for the first time a capability to do planning, particularly with the state and locals, upfront against a, con- a contingency like a failure at the local level. And the good news is back in, in 2008, when we had a rerun mm-hmm. of a hurricane aimed at New Orleans, uh, we had a good plan, we had a new governor, and we were able to evacuate everybody who needed to be evacuated before the storm hit. And we had taken steps to make sure there wasn't going to be a levee failure. And it was a storm that passed unremarkably. And that was that was a good news story. Were there points in Katrina or any of the other things that you were dealing with you thought for, the, obviously, not at the end of it, but for a moment of uh, what if the, this isn't working out? What, what are we, We've got a problem. It's uh, Things aren't clicking together. Yeah, well, things were not clicking together at, at in terms of the evacuation, right. uh, which, which had not been promptly ordered. So we had to backfill. Yeah. And um, that obviously put people into a lot of stress. We had to move an enormous number of people into Texas and to you've stay got at the stadium. Like media attention and and the president I'm sure is on the phone calling and Right. And the, although <laughs> the, the, again I mean the president was uh, having gone through 9/11 right. uh, was a, a pretty cool customer. And I I had gone through 9/11 as well and I was not a stranger to stress. So nobody got panicked, but we did understand we were operating under pressure. Uh, one of the key things is not to allow media focus necessarily to distract you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you need to be transparent, but ultimately the media can't be setting your agenda. It's got to be set by the necessities of the situation. But there, there wasn't, whether Katrina or anywhere else, or you, you thought for a second, okay, maybe we're not going to be able to get this right? I never thought we're not going to be able to get it right. But I will tell you on September 11th, yeah. I didn't know how many more things were going to happen. And whether Where were we, you on September 11th? I was in the command center at the FBI uh, within an hour after the time the second And where were hit. you when, when you found out? I was in the car on the way in. Okay. Uh, I heard first that there was a plane that had hit the World Trade Center. Uh, I was on the phone. And um, my first reaction is probably the same as many people was it was some pilot right. in a small plane. 
Then I heard from my deputy, a second plane had hit. We knew there was an attack. I went straight to the FBI, met him there, and we were in the command center for the next 20 hours with Bob Mueller. And the question was, how many more? And people don't necessarily remember, but uh, after the plane hit the Pentagon, there was one more plane. Obviously, we were worried it was going to hit Washington. But there were also false alarms. There was a fire alarm that went off in the State Department. We thought there had been a bomb. There was a rumor about taxi cabs with bombs in them. We had to chase that down. There was another plane coming in from the west that had a transponder Mm -hmm. suggesting a hijacking. We thought that might have to be shot down. And we were working frantically against time to try to track down first who the hijackers were and then who they might have been connected to and what was coming next. Now, you don't have a luxury in that moment to say, oh, my God, what if everything fails? Because failure is not an option. But what you do have to do is work uh, full speed ahead, not get panicked or flustered, and marshal all the resources with a sense of priority about what do you do first in order to stop something bad from happening. The, the September 11th happened nine months into the Bush presidency. Correct. Right, right. Again, not that we should ever hope that there would be anything like that again. God forbid. But from what you've... Uh, what you knew about the Bush administration starting out and what you've seen about the Trump administration starting out, uh, what you saw about the Obama administration starting out, how do they stack up? Should we get to a point where there would be something? Well, I mean, I say when we faced 9-11, at least there was no Homeland Security Department. The Department of Justice had the major responsibility for a domestic incident. Very few people were confirmed. There were only a handful of us. Um, and Bob Mueller was 10 days into the job. And that's, of course, right. That's eight months in, very few Correct. people were confirmed. Right. And, that, and that's not because the people, they were slow in nominating. Right. It's because it was a slow process. And, uh, but you had people who had a lot of government experience. Um, and so we were able, given the fact that it was a, an unprecedented situation, to move very quickly and use the levers of government to, to respond. And, you know, there were some tricky legal issues that had to be examined, um, and I'm sure there, with the luxury of hindsight, you could criticize this, that, or the other thing. But I will tell you this. Uh, the president made it very clear at the outset, both privately and publicly, that we needed to have a forceful response, that you did not want to have a circumstance where the public lost confidence in government because we seemed to be dithering around. And I think a fair evaluation is the president was able to achieve that. Um, public did calm down, uh, and the president balanced between being aggressive in response but making it clear, for example, that we were not at war with Islam or attacking Muslims. So I think that was positive. Now, no one knows for sure how the current administration would react because you can't predict. But again, the, I draw comfort, comfort from the fact that the leaders of the Department of Defense and the Department of, of Homeland Security have military experience. They've been in combat. Uh, they're not going to get flustered. They understand how to make things work operationally. And that's cause for optimism, uh, provided that you, know, you don't get young kids in the White House trying to get in the way and play cowboy. When the, <laughs> when the young kids tried, to, did any of them call you up? Directly, the young kids in the White House in the Bush years? On 9-11, I think everybody actually uh, in the White House, I mean, the White House was very much involved, and and Condi Rice was the national security advisor. But we didn't have that problem. I will tell you, though, I'll never forget a story. 
where um, the president asked me, you know, asked me if I was going to do something. Um, I told him I would. He said, please do it by tomorrow if you're going to do it. I said I would do it. I went back. I ordered it done. And someone came in uh, an hour later and said, you can't do this because the White House wants you to delay it. I said, the White House? <laughs> I said, uh, let, me, let me go back tomorrow during we have a cabinet meeting. I'm going to talk to the president. I did that. The president reiterated we should get it done. Did I you went, tell him that you had been told? That no, the White I didn't House. tell him. That. <laughs> uh, and and uh, uh, I went back and said, let's do it. They come in an hour later. The White House says, you can't do it. I said, tell whoever called you. <laughs> That unless he's higher up than the president under the Constitution, <laughs> I've spoken to the president twice, and we're doing it. And I, I used to tell that story as a great lesson that the building doesn't give orders. And usually the more uh, insistent that the person in the White House is that you follow their instruction, the lower down the food chain they are. Right. Um, can you tell us what it was that that was all about? It was not, not anything <laughs> momentous, but it had to do with a, 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 something that had to do with the foreign, uh, foreign population. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, we've, we, before the election, you, you said Trump was hysterical. Um, that was your word. Uh, and that was why you're going to vote for Clinton. After the election, right after the election, you said uh, you were encouraged that he was disciplined. Uh, so, where do you stand now? You know, as a, I mean, I think there are positive developments. I think he's, as I the appointments, I think, have been good in the national security area. Um, although there were statements early on about NATO, I think those have been walked back and I'm comfortable he's communicated that he does believe NATO is important. Um, so I think that, that in the more kind of deliberate moments, um, the approach is one that I think is a reasonable approach. And in some ways you can even point out that um, having a somewhat disruptive effect on the settled order of things can be positive. Now, then there are times we get um, Twitter flurries that I don't know that I would be, you know, likely to endorse. I'm not uh, in agreement with the idea of attacking the press. Um, I understand, you know, the press can be difficult sometimes, and sometimes the press is biased or or you you get incomplete reporting. And I certainly know when I went through Katrina, I was unhappy with some of the press. But look, the bottom line is the press plays an important role. And it is a way of keeping uh, the public informed and politicians accountable. So, Hopefully, um, as the administration matures, we'll get more in the deliberate mode and less in the reactive and and uh, maybe uh, exaggerated mode. You you were a judge over the course of your right. career. You spent a lot of time around the law. What do you think about the way that he's dealt with judges? Well, I, I first of all, I think that Judge Gorsuch is a very good mm-hmm. nomination. Um, uh, I you know I, every president probably gets frustrated with judges. Uh, and judges have life tenure for a reason, because they're expected to have a thick skin. And some, some of your listeners may be old enough to remember there used to be impeach or Warren signs on the highway because right. people didn't like the Warren court. That being said, I do think a president owes it to the public, even if he disagrees, to be respectful of the court. Um, so when you, you know, say the courts are, are acting in bad faith, that's unhelpful. Frankly, I thought when President Obama got up at the State of the Union that mm-hmm. year and in the face of the judges Attacked criticized the United them, decision, right? yeah, I think that was inappropriate. No, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the attention then was focused on Justice Alito right. say, mouthing the words not true, yeah. but not as much on the fact that the President of the United States had just attacked the Supreme Court. In, in front case. of the justices, right, <laughs> right at a State of the Union. 
I think that was inappropriate. So I, I, I get it that it's frustrating sometimes, and I also uh, rely upon the fact that judges have life tenure because they should expect they're going to get criticized and they're supposed to be tough enough to deal with it. But I still think a president owes it to the Constitution, even if he disagrees, to be respectful. Owes it why? I mean, other than it's the Constitution. I don't want to well, <laughs> minimize the Constitution. But, I, but, what, but what does it do when you have that? If this becomes the mode, uh, he was obviously pretty unhappy with the, uh, the rulings about the travel ban, uh, yeah. as he made clear. Uh, there was uh, a lot of anxiety out there about it. That, but, but what to you is the, the actual effect? I, of I, it? I think it's important for people to um, understand that the president respects the limits on his own power that we don't elect a president to be the king. We elect a president to play a role within a, a system. president has a lot of authority, but it's not unbounded authority. And um, it's also an important signal to people in the government not to overreach. You know, we give the government an awful lot of power in the area of surveillance and, and the use of force, but we do it in reliance upon the fact that they'll obey the rules. I will tell you, my experience has been almost universally that the people who work for the government do obey the rules and they're scrupulous, but they need to get that message reinforced. When, when you criticize Trump, when you, since then, have you, have you ever dealt with him directly? I think many years ago I met him once or twice, (laughs) you know, but that probably back like two decades ago. Um, Did you get, uh, I would imagine just based on the experiences that other people had when they would speak out about crossing party lines in last year's election that you uh, got some feedback from people about it. Did that when, when you made that announcement that you were going to vote for Clinton, did, they, did you hear from uh, people supportively uh, or antagonistically? I mean, some people agreed, some people disagreed. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my view is, I mean, I'm a Republican, but I do think that in the end, I'm an American first. Right. So it, um, there were things said during the campaign that I had strong disagreement with and, and I found troubling things said about Muslims, uh, things said about uh, Mexicans. And, you know, based on, on those statements, I, I had a very strong feeling that, that, that there was really risk involved. But, you know, I'd l- listen, if I, I'm proven wrong, that would be great. If it turns out that my fears were misplaced, good, because I want the country to do well. At the same time, I think we all, you know, should never lose sight of the fact that the most important thing are the bedrock principles of the Constitution. And party has to give way before American values. Where do you stand on radical Islamic terrorism as a phrase? So um, <laughs> I, when I was in office, I both in dealing with Muslim communities in the U.S. and, and in, the, in the Middle East, I used to ask them the question, what do you call the terrorists? Because I was wrestling with the right phrase. And interestingly, the phrase I heard most often was, we call them jihadis. And uh, then I started to use the term violent jihadi because I wanted to distinguish between people who view jihad as an internal struggle. Um, my takeaway from this was that while it's important to, not to suggest that Islam or most Muslims are terrorists, we would be um, putting our heads in the sand if we pretended that al-Qaeda or ISIS don't claim some relationship with Islam right. and don't wrap themselves in that. So I used to describe it as an ideology um, that claims the mantle of Islam. It, uh, it, I may view it as an incorrect mantle, but it is a radical, radical form of political Islam. Um, I think if you don't say that, 
people begin to think you lose credibility. Mm-hmm. And again, I didn't want to bend over further backwards than people who are Muslim. And many of, of the people I dealt with in the region were upfront in saying, these are jihadis, right. and that's what we're going to call them. Were they encouraging you to say that? Or to, to say, yes, draw that line and say radicals? Yes, I, I mean, I, and even more recently when I've been in the region and I've talked to people in the, in the Middle East, um, <clears throat> they've said to me, you need to call out extremism as extremism. Don't, don't pretend it doesn't exist because extremism leads to violence and terrorism. Uh, you know, I'll give you another an, uh, an example uh, from my past. I used to be prosecutor organized crime cases. And when I was an assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan under Rui Giuliani, I tried a case called the Commission case, which was against the bosses of the uh, four of the five mafia families. Um, so this is the, the 80s, 83, right? 1983. Okay. And um, uh, right around the time after we had indicted the case, uh, then-Governor Mario Cuomo said, there is no such thing as the mafia. It's a slur on Italians. Right. And then I got to play tapes in court where they, they said, literally, we are the mafia, we are La Cosa Nostra. <laughs> and they described themselves in terms of making people, you had to have some Italian background. Now, we, now Rudy Giuliani was Italian. We weren't saying all Italians were the mafia, or most were. But we couldn't pretend that the mafia didn't exist or that they weren't claiming that there was some connection with being Italian because we had it on tape and everybody got convicted and got 100 years in jail. So um, sometimes, you know, even an ethnic group needs to confront the fact that there may be people within the group that are using ethnicity for bad purposes and you've got to be willing to speak out about it. And what did Mario Cuomo say when uh, (laughs) the tapes were played? I think he was quiet after the tapes were played. (laughs) So, I mean, with the, the radical Islamic terrorism, the, the, this question, obviously, President Obama refused to use that term. Yeah. He felt like it made things more dangerous. Uh, President Trump uh, very clearly uh, said that that was a problem during the campaign and has said it as president. And, and yeah. But you see that um, uh, his national security advisor, his new national security advisor, has pushed back on using yeah. it. Is it, I mean, are, are, do people I, I, focus too much on this question? Well, I mean, I think you want to be careful in using it. Um, and I understand the sensitivity, but I also think that um, I worry that if you go out of your way to pretend that somehow this has nothing to do with at, at least some people claiming to represent Islam, even if it's a, a misplaced claim, if you, don't, if, you, if you go out of your way to ignore that, you start to lose public confidence in whether you're telling the truth. And, you know, I go back to what, again, happened after 9-11. Um, I do think we called uh, al-Qaeda a group that was radical Islamist, extreme Islamist, violent Islamist. But the president was careful always to balance it by making it very clear that most Muslims, uh, the vast majority, are not part of this, and Islam is not part of this. And I think that balance both gives you credibility with the public at large, but also reassures people in the, in the Muslim community. And I think, look, uh, there, uh, we had many Muslims in the Department of Homeland Security who were terrific public servants. I went over to Afghanistan and Iraq on a couple of occasions, and I swore in um, permanent residents, green card holders, uh, who were Muslim, who actually came from Arab countries, who had joined the U.S. military, were fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan, and they wrote, you know, raised their hands and swore U.S. citizenship. And I was proud of them. And they were a face of, of Islamic Americans that deserved a lot of credit, just like um, 
Captain Khan, who was whose mm-hmm. you know father spoke at the Democratic convention. When when President Bush was figuring out the phrasing that he would use, was he talking to you about that? I don't. Or, I think. I don't or was think it already he, set from think, where? I mean, obviously, you weren't secretary until yeah, the second term. So. I think that was set. You know, by the folks who were were dealing with communications early on. Have you talked to people who were at the Homeland Security Department when you were there, who are still there, who are the, the, the career people there? What, what are you hearing from them? I think, you know, I, I think people are, again, uh, pleased with the new secretary. Um, people are waiting to have other positions filled. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always, whenever there's a delay in filling positions, um, I think that creates a certain hesitancy and uncertainty. But look, I think they're about the mission and they want to do a good job. And they certainly don't want to make sure there's not another attack. And people are, are you know, justifiably nervous about the phenomenon of foreign fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do want to make sure that we are taking all reasonable steps to secure ourselves. But uh, a lot of it is just a process of waiting to see what the positions are going to be that are populated. There's also a sense of... Uh from from the White House, it seems a suspicion about uh, career people. People have been there for a long time. It comes obviously connected with some of the disruption that President Trump wants to bring to Washington, uh, but also uh, a discomfort with the leaks that have been coming out, and uh, he's blaming that on. Uh, the other day, he blamed it on the Obama people left behind. It seems like what he means more than the Obama people left behind is the career people who are there who worked, obviously, for President Obama and some of them worked for President Bush. And I assume there must be some people there who worked for Clinton and Bush before. <laughs> I've been uh, around know, a long time. Uh, having observed you know, transitions, I mean, I guess the last four or five presidents, because I was uh, in, the, in the Bush 41 administration mm-hmm. as U.S. attorney. Right. Um, er, literally every incoming administration always is suspicious of the people there before. And they begin – by saying we can't trust anybody and we have to bring our own people in. And then over time, they generally learn, you know, the vast majority of people who are there really just want to do a good job. And as long as you give them an opportunity to be heard and you are willing to evaluate their advice objectively, they'll be perfectly happy to serve whoever's president. But that sense of coming in, feeling that you're, you're – uh, in a hostile territory is literally something I've seen in every single transition. And you, you had the, the weird experience of being a uh, holdover from right, Bush for to Clinton. a day, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Um, but, uh, the, well, I mean, as U.S. attorney, right? Oh, oh yes, sorry. I was a holdover. Oh, just, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, and right, when the Clinton people so, came so in. So that's, that's your U.S. attorney under right. George H.W. Bush uh, and then kept in the job for a year. Uh, the, the only one, right? I think there was one more. Yeah, okay. Two of us, yeah. Uh, so the, the first year of the Clinton administration. Yeah. So you got to see that suspicion. That's right. <laughs> and, and I think there were, you know, there was, um, uh, both, you know, partly because President Bush 41 had lost to President Clinton. There was some hostility from the outgoing folks uh, and a lot of suspicion from the incoming folks. I think when the uh, – when I remember when the new administration came in under President uh, Bush 43, there were people who were very suspicious of those that were there, both people in the administration, people kibitzing from the outside – and I think when the Obama people came in, they were very suspicious of the Bush people, even though we had, I think, by all acknowledgement, a very smooth transition. By, so, by President Obama's acknowledgement, yeah. yeah. So this this phenomenon of the new people coming in and figure, oh, my God, everybody here is waiting to sabotage us, 
I think that's pretty much a universal experience, and it usually wears away as you get to know the people in the department. Although the leaks thing, the the, the discomfort with leaks going on, and certainly there are more leaks. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's not like this uh, suspicion is coming from, from nothing. No, <laughs> but but it, leaking, it drives the conversation to right. a different place. And leaking uh, always upsets people who want to control communication. It doesn't upset uh, reporters. Right. I, I know it doesn't. <laughs> um, and, you know, part of the problem with leaking is the person who leaks often has an agenda. So evaluating the accuracy mm-hmm. of the leak uh, becomes a little bit challenging. And um, I know the Obama people were upset with some of the leaks that came out and actually, I think, brought more cases against that is correct. leakers than anybody <laughs> else had. So it may be that we're progressing in the direction <laughs> of more aggressive uh, use of those tools. But look, I'm ba- I, I don't endorse leaking, but I do think aggressive coverage is appropriate. You have to be energetic. You don't want reporters who just wait to be spoon-fed. You want them to go out and do some digging. Now, obviously, classified things are off limits. Right. But, you know, if there are policy disputes or things of that sort, um, it's fair game to try to uncover what the real story is. And the, the story, for example, of what happened with the travel ban, which was uh, how that generated, that, that to you seems like a legitimate story to get into and, and who wrote it in the White House and how there wasn't input yeah. from agencies. or Yeah, and I think it was kind of obvious, actually, right. that it was, it was not fully baked mm-hmm. when it was served. So, I mean, I don't think it was a revelation. And, you know, if you, I mean, putting aside that you don't like people leaking if you're in government, sometimes reading the story will uh, call your attention to the fact that maybe you need to retool your processes. Mm-hmm. Do you think the idea, the travel ban that that was there, you said was not fully baked. The White House says that there is another one coming. Right. The idea of a travel ban in itself, how does that strike you? You know, I'm not sure the word travel ban is the right word. Um, I, here's what I think is a fair point. And I go back a couple of years. Um, the countries that were identified, putting aside Iran, um, were countries which were identified a couple of years ago by Congress as countries of concern for people who traveled from Europe because European travelers don't need visas. But the countries identified were areas where there were active operations by terrorist groups. And the concern was people traveling from Europe to those areas might come back, and then what happens if they come to the U.S.? So the law said these people are going to need visas. Now, it's fair to take a look at the vetting uh, and asking, do we need to change it or improve it? And um, what I think was, was misplaced about this ban, among other things, putting aside the legal issue with respect to permanent residents mm-hmm. and people who have visas, what I think was misplaced was instead of looking at recent travelers to those countries, they just looked at people who were from those countries. And so you could, in theory, have someone who was Libyan, had a Libyan passport, but had lived in Italy for 30 years and not set foot in Libya, and that person is not a risk. Whereas somebody from France, who all of a sudden mysteriously spent four months in Iraq and comes back, you should take a look at. So I think if they focus on more specifically what we would worry about, and then on a, not, not stopping people in mid-flight, but in deciding who to give visas to, you kind of take a look at whether you've got to do some closer vetting. I think that's a fair thing to do. I mean, the, the, the argument made by the president was that it, they just couldn't let anybody – this. They couldn't let any of the public know about what was going on. They couldn't even let the uh, various departments know what was going on because it would leak out and then the public would know because they needed to stop people in their tracks I, and, I think and get ahead was, of them. I think that was perhaps overdramatic. <laughs> um, 
I, I mean, anytime you roll something out, there's always the possibility someone's going to run it at the last right. minute. But we, we have a, a quite a robust uh, uh, procedure in place as it is. And particularly with, with the visa process, um, they do a pretty good scrub. So I don't think there was an urgency about it. But again, it's a fair point to at least kick the tires on the visa process as long as you do it in a streamlined and, and focused way. And sure enough, as we're sitting here now, the revised travel ban hasn't been put right. out. So it does seem to call into question that argument that the president well, they were making that it needed to be rushed. I think, right? that, I think they've determined now that they can uh, – there's not much risk in taking their time and doing it right. And I think that's a good lesson learned. Is the list of countries right or should it be expanded? One of the criticisms that came out was, well, if you look at uh, the people who have perpetrated attacks in the United States, and they're not from those countries. Well, you know, for example, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Go back to 9-11, right? So I, I think people who make that argument confuse two things. Um, th- this list was actually originally identified by Congress, and it's based on areas now where there are active terrorist operations uh, Iran is a little bit of a different category, right. but pretty self-evident. Um, there are also countries which, um, by and large, do not necessarily have full control over everything going on in their territory, so their ability to vet people or to cooperate with us is somewhat diminished. So those countries made sense. Now, Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, putting aside what happened 15 years ago, we have developed a very strong intelligence-sharing uh, mechanism with them, and they are very good at doing the vetting. And I remember um, some years ago when we, uh, I was in Saudi Arabia and I met with the king, then King Abdullah, to talk about the visa program that we were granting them. He said to me, look, I mean through a translator, we are not going to let anybody, uh, we're going to do everything humanly possible to prevent anybody dangerous from getting on a plane to come to the U.S. We take it very seriously. So that's not a country I would worry about mm-hmm. as much. Um, I might argue, actually, you could look at Venezuela. Was the king watching TV while he talked to you? No, that was, no, this was— I, they, they, the People may not know that King Abdul is sort of famous for yes, always having a TV He go. did have a TV, <laughs> but not in this particular conversation. It was focused on the— <laughs> Right. Uh, this was after we had the dinner, yes. Um, but uh, I, I might take a look at Venezuela. I mean, that's— a, You know, the, we, the vice president there has been identified mm-hmm. as being uh, connected to Hezbollah. And I think there was recently reporting— that a large number of passports were stolen. And we know that in the last several years, Venezuela had close relations with Iran and there were flights going back and forth. So you, you might say, you know, with Venezuela, we ought to take a, a harder look at the passports uh, and the travelers coming from there. And then it gets away from that question of whether it's a Muslim ban, right, which was the other Correct. big piece of this. And, Correct. And uh, that your former boss, Rudy Giuliani, got into some trouble for saying it was, right? Yeah. Um, does that that characterization of it get into trouble? Is it fair? Is it because it, part of the reason why it was applied to that executive order is because it was a ban that went to predominantly Muslim countries, but seemed to have an exemption for anybody who was a Christian. Uh, so the way it well, translated that, out, plus yeah. President Trump's campaign rhetoric, right, led to that. And I think sometimes the, the rhetoric, particularly the campaign rhetoric or the not thinking through all the nuances winds up creating an unnecessary problem. Uh, you know, I, I remember when we were, stylistically, when I was in government, and we did some pretty tough things, um, but we used to try to be very measured in the way we described it. And I remember somebody once complaining to me that I was doing things that were very aggressive, but I sounded so reasonable it was hard to attack me. Um, 
But we is found that your secret to your success. Well, I, I, <laughs> uh, we found that being low key, yeah. um, and underplaying was a, effective as a communication strategy. Sometimes I think that, particularly on the campaign trail, there's a tendency almost to do the reverse, right. and that things that actually, if you looked at them, would seem defensible and even reasonable, are presented in an overheated way, such that they seem more dramatic. Now, I understand that maybe there's a political benefit to that, but when you're dealing with, uh, let's say, reviewing courts, um, that may be somewhat counterproductive. So again, striking the right note um, often can diffuse a lot of the the, uh, controversy up front. I mean, President Trump said two weeks ago, life is a campaign, right? Everything's a campaign. Uh, so I'm not. <laughs> but sometimes your but sometimes your your audience is different, right. and uh, you you have to be able to adapt your campaign style. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about career people in DHS. Uh, there is a debate among some Republican critics of, of President Trump of whether uh, people should either stay working for him uh, in the administration or whether they should go seek out jobs if they disagree with what he's doing as president. Well, I, I've told people, because I've recommended to people, that they uh, do accept jobs. Um, obviously, you don't— Even people have said to you, I don't, think, I, I don't like what he's doing as president. Well, and I don't th- what I've said is if they feel in the area they're working that they can make a contribution, they should take the job. But don't park your conscience at the door. If at some, and this is true with any president. If at some point uh, your conscience is violated or your— uh, fundamental values are not compatible with what the administration is doing, then you have to always be willing to pull your resignation out and leave. And that's true under any president. And so, but I, I, I would not uh, shun a job in a, in, if you felt you could make a mm-hmm. contribution uh, simply because you're afraid at some point that might happen. You just have to be ready if and when it does to, to walk away. Do you think it has slowed people down from looking for those jobs based on the conversations you've had with folks? I think some people are hesitant. Uh, sometimes it's the style issue that uh, turns mm-hmm. them off. Um, sometimes they may be uncertain about who they're going to be working for. Uh, but I think, um, you know, I have a number of former colleagues and people who worked for me um, who've asked me about it, and I've told them that I think they should if they feel they can make a contribution. And I know them well enough to know that if at some point a line is crossed, they will uh, put a resignation in. But I still think they can – look, if it, uh, we, we live in the United States. We want the country to succeed. Right. If we can get good, solid people in there and, and that makes things better, that's great. And have those people been following your advice to go apply for jobs and get jobs? By and large, yeah. Uh, one of the other things that you have experience with is uh, uh, congressional investigations, right? uh, special inquiries. Uh, when you look at where we are now in this talk that maybe there's going to be a special prosecutor uh, into the Russia connections, possible Russia connections to the Trump campaign, what it, what's your advice from having been through this yeah. of how for, – for, for, for the Democrats, for the Republicans, for the potential special prosecutors who will be there? So I, I just without getting into specifics about a particular investigation, I would generally say this. I think it's – important and fair, you know, there's the issue about Russian hacking. More generally, the Russians have been engaged in what they call information operations in Europe for several years now. And I think that whole issue of um, what the Russians are doing uh, in terms of a general approach to trying to impact democracy 
uh, and how we ought to react. I think that is a fair and important thing to be investigated. Um, What would be a bad thing to do, which Republicans did when there were Democrats in office, um, and I've come to think it was actually counterproductive, is to make everything into a criminal case. And and we, we pounce, and the press is sometimes guilty of this too, pouncing on every little slip or discrepancy, and now we want to go back to Watergate and have trials and criminal stuff. That That is not what Congress's highest function is. It's at, at best a distraction, at worst undermines confidence in government. And, you know, for all the people who look at the election and go, look how skeptical the American public is about our institutions, I think both Republicans and Democrats have to look in the mirror. If you are constantly impugning the motives of your adversaries, if your attitude is the sky is always falling and the wolf is always at the door, don't be surprised if the public thinks that democracy is a mess. So everybody take a deep breath. Um, you know, if you if you happen to shake hands with the Russian ambassador at a big cocktail party, it's not the end of the world. Have you met the Russian ambassador? I don't remember. It's <laughs> quite possible I have. Um, but the point is, let's not let's not go for the capillary. Right. Let's look at the big picture, which is the issue of Russian hacking, Russian disinformation. And that's worth exploring because there's some policy implications to that. Is that where you uh, the, more the, the cybersecurity uh, question than, uh, than a pandemic, than a terrorist attack? Is that, uh, I mean, it, of course, it depends on what size yeah, I, pandemic, what size yeah. terrorist attack. That's, but, I would uh, say— but in trying to figure out where your worries are, and I, I hate to close on what is yeah. a, not an upbeat note. I here. think cybersecurity, <laughs> and it can be—it could be a terrorist, it could be a nation right. state. I think a cyber, a cyber, serious cyber attack is the number one thing I'd be concerned about, and uh, not just one involving the theft of money or intellectual property, but one that would be disruptive or destructive, like to the energy grid, or to, the, to energy, or to water works, or to the air traffic system or even to the, with the Internet of Things to all these automated vehicles. And, um, and I would also worry about an attack on the election voting process that actually undermined confidence in the voting process. These, I think, are front-burner issues. And it's complicated because a lot of the responsibility does rest with the private sector, uh, although the government has an important role to play too. But that's an area where I think we've seen in recent years – uh, you know, in, in the Ukraine, in the last couple of years, there, around Christmas time, the, the the electric grid has gone down because of cyber attacks. Uh, we saw a case brought against some Iranians who hacked into a what they thought was a dam in upstate New York, and they were indicted. So we've got to really focus on this, and it's not just a U.S. issue; it is a global issue. And actually, part of what I'm involved in now is trying to work with people from other countries about let's at least have some basic understandings internationally that you don't take down a hospital or the financial system in cyberspace any more than you would bomb it, you know, using kinetic means. Have you talked to any Russian officials about that? uh, Uh, Last year, I went over with a delegation from the East-West Institute and met with some uh, think tank people in Russia and and also met with a, a Russian cyber official. And we talked about the fact that there need to be uh, there are obvious disagreements, and I, I'm very skeptical in dealing with the Russians, as I think I've made clear. But we need to at least, as we did during the Cold War, 
talk about whether we can have some basic agreement on what is off limits. That it doesn't do anybody good to unleash some unleash something that's going to cause either a real war or massive destruction to infrastructure in in both countries. And did they seem receptive to that? Um, I, the the reaction I got back from this person was receptive, um, and I do think that this is an issue which I know the U.S. government has talked to the mm-hmm. Russians about. I think a positive thing that the new administration could do would be to to at least have a dialogue on this. Now, you've got to be realistic, and there are some real differences in what the Russians view as Mm -hmm. cybersecurity and what we do, and we don't believe, for example, that cybersecurity means censoring ideas we don't like. But even in the height of the Cold War, we were able to sit down and reach some agreements on a hotline, on things of that sort. And I think that um, we, we should treat the Russians, they are a major power, we should treat them respectfully, but warily. And I do think there's room for discussion about where there might be some common ground. Your last security briefing. And let me just say, I've yeah. communicated this to the U.S. government. When I came back, I, 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 it was then the Obama right. administration. I gave them that message because the Russians asked, actually Were asked they receptive to it? To it? Um, I think they were receptive, but I think, frankly, things were winding down, yeah. and that makes it a little difficult. So your last uh, security briefing as a government official was at the beginning of 2009, eight years ago. Are you, given what you were seeing then as you were leaving, are you surprised that we're talking about Russia as much as we are now in 2017? Uh, in 2008, <laughs> I would never have imagined uh, we would be talking about Russia as much as we have. I felt sorry for all the people who had gone and gotten graduate degrees back in the Cold War and had brushed up on the Russian, and now they were being told you got to learn Arabic <laughs> or, or Pashtun right. or Urdu. And I, I remember the ridicule directed at Mitt Romney when he talked mm-hmm. about Russia as an adversary, and I think Romney was right. And I, someone was telling me the other day that he remembered uh, being in college right around the fall of Berlin Wall and uh, thinking all these professors, like, they're just going to be out of work, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but if they... Kept well, their, <laughs> I, I mean, I they think, kept their jobs, and they're probably pretty popular these days. Yeah, well, I think so. <laughs> and I think one of the great lessons of the last, I would say, several years, is uh, that actually the settled order of things can be disrupted very quickly. And I would point to two things in the last twenty years that underscore that. One is nine eleven. That was a paradigm shift mm-hmm. for Americans who had never had a serious attack on American soil directed at civilians. I mean, Pearl Harbor was obviously directed at military uh, assets. And the second thing was the financial crisis of 09, which I think really shook the public, partly because it was focused a lot on housing. And for a lot of Americans, for years, they'd been told, your house is your asset, that's your nest egg. And all of a sudden, they were seeing that their nest egg had disappeared. And I think that and the, and the response really shook people's confidence in, in frankly, in, in capitalism. Um, so we need to kind of take a deep breath and, and ask ourselves, um, do we get too settled in our expectations? Do we need occasionally to have a disruptive outsider come in? Um, and I, I guess I would, I would say this. Um, I mean, there are stylistic things about the new president that don't, do not appeal to me. But the concept that you ought to come in and th- disrupt things and ask hard questions is not a bad thing. The key is at some point you've got to stop the disruption, you've got to start the rebuilding, and that's going to be the real test. All right. Secretary Michael Chertoff, thanks for joining us. Thank you.